0: chapter 17 of rainbow valley by lucy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by karen savage chapter 17 a double victory norman douglas came to church the first sunday in november and made all the sensation he desired mr meredith shook hands with him absently on the church steps and hoped dreamily that mrs douglas was well she wasn't very well just before i buried her 10 years ago but i reckon she has better health now boomed Norman to the horror and amusement of everyone except Mr. Meredith, who was absorbed in wondering if he had made the last head of his sermon as clear as he might have, and hadn't the least idea what Norman had said to him or he to Norman. Norman intercepted Faith at the gate. "'Kept my word, you see—kept my word, Red Rose. I'm free now till the first Sunday in December. Fine sermon, girl—fine sermon. Your father has more in his head than he carries on his face. But he contradicted himself once. Tell him he contradicted himself. And tell him I want that brimstone sermon in December. Great way to wind up the old year with a taste of hell, you know. And what's the matter with a nice tasty discourse on heaven for New Year's? Though it wouldn't be half as interesting as hell, girl—not half. Only I'd like to know what your father thinks about heaven. He can think—rarest thing in the world—a person who can think. But he did contradict himself. Here's a question you might ask him some time when he's awake, girl. Can God make a stone so big he couldn't lift it himself? Don't forget now. I want to hear his opinion on it. I've stumped many a minister with that girl." Faith was glad to escape him and run home. Dan Reese, standing among the crowd of boys at the gate, looked at her and shaped his mouth into Pig Girl but dared not utter it aloud just there. Next day in school was a different matter. At noon recess, Faith encountered Dan in the little spruce plantation behind the school, and Dan shouted once more, "'Pig girl! Pig girl! Rooster girl!' Walter Blythe suddenly rose from a mossy cushion behind a little clump of firs where he had been reading. He was very pale, but his eyes blazed. "'You hold your tongue, Dan Reese," he said. "'Oh, hello, Miss Walter,' retorted Dan, not at all abashed. He vaulted airily to the top of the rail fence and chanted insultingly, "'Cowardy, cowardy, custard! Stole the pot of mustard! Cowardy, cowardy, custard!' "'You are a coincidence,' said Walter scornfully, turning still wider. He had only a very hazy idea what a coincidence was, but Dan had none at all, and thought it must be something peculiarly opprobrious ya yeah, cowardy! He yelled again, Your mother writes lies, 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 and Faith Meredith is a pig girl, a pig girl, a pig girl, and she's a rooster girl, a rooster girl, a rooster girl, ya, yeah, cowardy, cowardy co-. Dan got no further. Walter had hurled himself across the intervening space and knocked Dan off the fence backward with one well-directed blow. Dan's sudden, inglorious sprawl was greeted with a burst of laughter and a clapping of hands from Faith. Dan sprang up purple with rage and began to climb the fence. But just then the school-bell rang and Dan knew what happened to boys who were late during Mr. Hazard's regime. "'We'll fight this out,' he howled. Cowardy!" "'Any time you like,' said Walter. "'Oh, no, no, Walter,' protested Faith. "'Don't fight him. I don't mind what he says. I wouldn't condescend to mind the like of him. He insulted you and he insulted my mother, said Walter with the same deadly calm. Tonight after school, Dan. I've got to go right home from school to pick taters after the Harrows, Dad says, answered Dan sulkily. But tomorrow night'll do. All right. Here tomorrow night, agreed Walter. And I'll smash your sissy face for you, promised Dan. Walter shuddered, not so much from fear of the threat as from repulsion over the ugliness and vulgarity of it. But he held his head high and marched into school. Faith followed in a conflict of emotions. She hated to think of Walter fighting that little sneak, but oh, he had been splendid! And he was going to fight for her, Faith Meredith, to punish her insulter. Of course he would win. Such eyes spelled victory. Faith's confidence in her champion had dimmed a little by evening, however. Walter had seemed so very quiet and dull the rest of the day in school. "'If only it were Jem,' she sighed to Una as they sat on Hezekiah Pollock's tombstone in the graveyard. He is such a fighter. He could finish Dan off in no time. But Walter doesn't know much about fighting." "'I'm so afraid he'll be hurt,' sighed Una, who hated fighting and couldn't understand the subtle, secret exultation she divined in Faith. He oughtn't to be," said Faith uncomfortably. He's every bit as big as Dan. But Dan's so much older," said Una. Why, he's nearly a year older. "'Dan hasn't done much fighting when you come to count up,' said Faith. I believe he's really a coward. He didn't think Walter would fight or he wouldn't have called names before him. Oh, if you could have just SEEN Walter's face when he looked at him, Una! It made me shiver—with a nice shiver. He looked just like Sir Galahad in that poem Father read us on Saturday." I hate the thought of them fighting, and I wish it could be stopped," said Una. Oh, it's got to go on now," cried Faith. It's a matter of honor. Don't you dare tell anyone, Una. If you do I'll never tell you secrets again. I won't tell, agreed Una, but I won't stay to-morrow to watch the fight. I'm coming right home. Oh, all right. I have to be there. It would be mean not to when Walter is fighting for me. I'm going to tie my colors on his arm—that's the thing to do when he's my knight. How lucky Mrs. Blythe gave me that pretty blue hair ribbon for my birthday. I've only worn it twice, so it will be almost new. But I wish I was sure Walter would win. It will be so—so humiliating if he doesn't." Faith would have been yet more dubious if she could have seen her champion just then. Walter had gone home from school with all his righteous anger at a low ebb and a very nasty feeling in its place. He had to fight Dan Reese the next night, and he didn't want to—he hated the thought of it. And he kept thinking of it all the time. Not for a minute could he get away from the thought. Would it hurt much? He was terribly afraid that it would hurt. And would he be defeated and shamed? He could not eat any supper worth speaking of. Susan had made a big batch of his favorite monkey faces, but he could only choke down one. Jem ate four. Walter wondered how he could—how could anybody eat? And how could they all talk gaily as they were doing? There was Mother with her shining eyes and pink cheeks. She didn't know her son had to fight next day. Would she be so gay if she knew? Walter wondered darkly. Jem had taken Susan's picture with his new camera and the result was passed around the table, and Susan was terribly indignant over it. "'I am no beauty, Mrs. Dr. dear, and well I know it—and have always known it,' she said in an aggrieved tone. But that I am as ugly as that picture makes me out I will never, no, never believe." Jem laughed over this and Anne laughed again with him. Walter couldn't endure it. He got up and fled to his room. "'That child has got something on his mind, Mrs. Dr. dear,' said Susan. "'He has et next to nothing. Do you suppose he is plotting another poem?' Poor Walter was very far removed in spirit from the starry realms of poesy just then. He propped his elbow on his open window sill and leaned his head drearily on his hands. Come on down to the shore, Walter, cried Jem, busting in. The boys are going to burn the sandhill grass tonight. Father says we can go. Come on. At any other time Walter would have been delighted. He gloried in the burning of the sandhill grass, but now he flatly refused to go, and no arguments or entreaties could move him. Disappointed Jem, who did not care for the long dark walk to Four Winds Point alone, retreated to his museum in the garret and buried himself in a book. He soon forgot his disappointment, revelling with the heroes of old romance and pausing occasionally to picture himself a famous general leading his troops to victory on some great battlefield. Walter sat at his window until bedtime. Di crept in, hoping to be told what was wrong, but Walter could not talk of it, even to Di. Talking of it seemed to give it a reality from which he shrank. It was torture enough to think of it. The crisp, withered leaves rustled on the maple trees outside his window. The glow of rose and flame had died out of the hollow, silvery sky and the full moon was rising gloriously over Rainbow Valley. Afar off a ruddy wood fire was painting a page of glory on the horizon beyond the hills. It was a sharp, clear evening when faraway sounds were heard distinctly. A fox was barking across the pond. An engine was puffing down at the Glen Station. A blue jay was screaming madly in the maple grove. There was laughter over on the manse lawn. How could people laugh? How could foxes and blue jays and engines behave as if nothing were going to happen on the morrow? Oh, I wish it was over, groaned Walter. He slept very little that night and had hard work choking down his porridge in the morning. Susan WAS rather lavish in her platefuls. Mr. Hazard found him an unsatisfactory pupil that day. Faith Meredith's wits seemed to be wool-gathering, too. Dan Reese kept drawing surreptitious pictures of girls with pig or rooster heads on his slate and holding them up for all to see. The news of the coming battle had leaked out and most of the boys and many of the girls were in the spruce plantation when Dan and Walter sought it after school. Una had gone home, but Faith was there, having tied her blue ribbon around Walter's arm. Walter was thankful that neither Jem nor Di nor Nan were among the crowd of spectators. Somehow they had not heard of what was in the wind and had gone home too. Walter faced Dan quite undauntedly now. At the last moment all his fear had vanished, but he still felt disgust at the idea of fighting. Dan, it was noted, was really paler under his freckles than Walter was. One of the older boys gave the word and Dan struck Walter in the face. Walter reeled a little. The pain of the blow tingled through all his sensitive frame for a moment. Then he felt pain no longer. Something, such as he had never experienced before, seemed to roll over him like a flood. His face flushed crimson, his eyes burned like flame. The scholars of Glen St. Mary's School had never dreamed that Miss Walter could look like that. He hurled himself forward and closed with Dan like a young wildcat. There were no particular rules in the fights of the Glen schoolboys. It was catch as catch can and get your blows in anyhow. Walter fought with a savage fury and a joy in the struggle against which Dan could not hold his ground. It was all over speedily. Walter had no clear consciousness of what he was doing until suddenly the red mist cleared from his sight and he found himself kneeling on the body of the prostrate Dan whose nose—oh, horror—was spouting blood. "'Have you had enough?' demanded Walter through his clenched teeth. Dan sulkily admitted that he had. "'My mother doesn't write lies?' "'No.' "'Faith Meredith isn't a pig-girl?' "'No.' "'Nor a rooster-girl?' "'No.' "'And I'm not a coward?' "'No.' Walter had intended to ask, and you are a liar. But pity intervened and he did not humiliate Dan further. Besides, that blood was so horrible. "'You can go, then,' he said contemptuously. There was a loud clapping from the boys who were perched on the rail fence, but some of the girls were crying. They were frightened. They had seen schoolboy fights before, but nothing like Walter as he had grappled with Dan. There had been something terrifying about him. They thought he would kill Dan. Now that all was over they sobbed hysterically, except Faith, who still stood tense and crimson-cheeked. Walter did not stay for any conqueror's meed. He sprang over the fence and rushed down the spruce hill to Rainbow Valley. He felt none of the victor's joy, but he felt a certain calm satisfaction in duty done and honor avenged, mingled with a sickish qualm when he thought of Dan's gory nose. It had been so ugly, and Walter hated ugliness. Also he began to realize that he himself was somewhat sore and battered up. His lip was cut and swollen, and one eye felt very strange. In Rainbow Valley he encountered Mr. Meredith, who was coming home from an afternoon call on the Miss Wests. The reverend gentleman looked gravely at him. "'It seems to me that you have been fighting, Walter.' "'Yes, sir,' said Walter, expecting a scolding. "'What was it about?' "'Dan Reese said my mother wrote lies and that Faith was a pig-girl,' answered Walter bluntly. "'Oh!' "'Then you were certainly justified, Walter.' "'Do you think it's right to fight, sir?' asked Walter curiously. "'Not always.' And not often, but sometimes—yes, sometimes," said John Meredith. When womankind are insulted, for instance, as in your case. My motto, Walter, is, don't fight till you're sure you ought to, and then put every ounce of you into it. In spite of sundry discolorations, I infer that you came off best? Yes. I made him take it all back. Very good. Very good, indeed. I didn't think you were such a fighter, Walter. I never fought before. And I didn't want to, right up to the last. And then," said Walter, determined to make a clean breast of it, I liked it while I was at it. The Reverend John's eyes twinkled. You were—a little frightened at first. I was a whole lot frightened," said honest Walter. But I'm not going to be frightened any more, sir. Being frightened of things is worse than the things themselves. I'm going to ask Father to take me over to Lowbridge to-morrow to get my tooth out." Right again. Fear is more pain than is the pain it fears. Do you know who wrote that, Walter? It was Shakespeare. Was there any feeling or emotion or experience of the human heart that that wonderful man did not know? When you go home, tell your mother I am proud of you." Walter did not tell her that, however, but he told her all the rest, and she sympathized with him and told him she was glad he had stood up for her and faith, and she anointed his sore spots and rubbed cologne on his aching head. "'Are all mothers as nice as you?' asked Walter, hugging her. "'You're worth standing up for.'" Miss Cornelia and Susan were in the living room when Anne came downstairs and listened to the story with much enjoyment. Susan in particular was highly gratified. "'I'm real glad to hear he has had a good fight, Mrs. Dr. dear. Perhaps it may knock that poetry nonsense out of him. And I never, no, never could bear that little viper of a Dan Reese.' Will you not sit nearer to the fire, Mrs. Marshall Elliott? These November evenings are very chilly." "'Thank you, Susan. I'm not cold. I called at the manse before I came here and got quite warm, though I had to go to the kitchen to do it, for there was no fire anywhere else. The kitchen looked as if it had been stirred up with a stick, believe me. Mr. Meredith wasn't home—I couldn't find out where he was—but I have an idea that he was up at the West's. Do you know, Anne, dearie, they say he has been going there frequently all the fall and people are beginning to think he is going to see Rosemary." "'He would get a very charming wife if he married Rosemary,' said Anne, piling driftwood on the fire. "'She is one of the most delightful girls I've ever known—truly one of the race of Joseph.' "'Yes, only she is an Episcopalian,' said Miss Cornelia doubtfully. Of course that is better than if she was a Methodist. But I do think Mr. Meredith could find a good enough wife in his own denomination. However, very likely there is nothing in it. It's only a month ago that I said to him, "'You ought to marry again, Mr. Meredith.' He looked as shocked as if I had suggested something improper. "'My wife is in her grave, Mrs. Elliot," he said, in that gentle, saintly way of his. "'I suppose so,' I said, or I wouldn't be advising you to marry again.' Then he looked more shocked than ever so I doubt if there is much in this Rosemary story. If a single minister calls twice at a house where there is a single woman, all the gossips have it that he is courting her." "'It seems to me, if I may presume to say so, that Mr. Meredith is too shy to go courting a second wife,' said Susan solemnly. "'He isn't shy, believe me,' retorted Miss Cornelia. Absent-minded, yes. But shy, no and for all he is so abstracted and dreamy he has a very good opinion of himself, man-like, and when he is really awake he wouldn't think it much of a chore to ask any woman to have him. No, the trouble is he's deluding himself into believing that his heart is buried while all the time it's beating away inside of him just like anybody else's. He may have a notion of Rosemary West and he may not. If he has, we must make the best of it. She is a sweet girl and a fine housekeeper, and would make a good mother for those poor neglected children. And concluded Miss Cornelia resignedly, my own grandmother was an Episcopalian. End of Chapter Seventeen. Chapter Eighteen of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 18 Mary Brings Evil Tidings Mary Vance, whom Mrs. Elliott had sent up to the manse on an errand, came tripping down Rainbow Valley on her way to Ingleside, where she was to spend the afternoon with Nan and Di as a Saturday treat. Nan and Di had been picking spruce gum with Faith and Una in the manse woods, and the four of them were now sitting on a fallen pine by the brook, all, it must be admitted, chewing rather vigorously. The Ingleside twins were not allowed to chew spruce-gum anywhere but in the seclusion of Rainbow Valley, but Faith and Una were unrestricted by such rules of etiquette and cheerfully chewed it everywhere, at home and abroad, to the very proper horror of the Glen. Faith had been chewing it in church one day, but Jerry had realized the enormity of that and had given her such an older brotherly scolding that she never did it again. I was so hungry I just felt as if I had to chew something," she protested. "'You know well enough what breakfast was like, Jerry Meredith. I couldn't eat scorched porridge and my stomach just felt so queer and empty. The gum helped a lot, and I didn't chew very hard. I didn't make any noise and I never cracked the gum once.' "'You mustn't chew gum in church anyhow,' insisted Jerry. "'Don't let me catch you at it again.' "'You chewed yourself in prayer meeting last week,' cried Faith. That's different, said Jerry loftily. Prayer meeting isn't on Sunday. Besides, I sat away at the back in a dark seat and nobody saw me. You were sitting right up front where everyone saw you. And I took the gum out of my mouth for the last hymn and stuck it on the back of the pew in front of me. Then I came away and forgot it. I went back to get it next morning but it was gone. I s'pose Rod Warren swiped it. And it was a dandy chew. Mary Vance walked down the valley with her head held high. She had on a new blue velvet cap with a scarlet rosette in it, a coat of navy blue cloth, and a little squirrel fur muff. She was very conscious of her new clothes, and very well pleased with herself. Her hair was elaborately crimped, her face was quite plump, her cheeks rosy, her white eyes shining. She did not look much like the forlorn and ragged waif the Merediths have found in the old tailor barn. Una tried not to feel envious. Here was Mary with a new velvet cap, but she and Faith had to wear their shabby old grey tams again this winter. Nobody ever thought of getting them new ones, and they were afraid to ask their father for them for fear he might be short of money and then he would feel badly. Mary had told them once that ministers were always short of money and found it awful hard to make ends meet. Since then Faith and Una would have gone in rags rather than ask their father for anything if they could help it. They did not worry a great deal over their shabbiness, but it was rather trying to see Mary Vance coming out in such style and putting on such airs about it, too. The new squirrel muff was really the last straw. Neither Faith nor Una had ever had a muff, counting themselves lucky if they could compass mittens without holes in them. And Martha could not see to darn holes, and though Una tried to she made sad cobbling. Somehow they could not make their greeting of Mary very cordial. But Mary did not mind or notice that. She was not overly sensitive. She vaulted lightly to a seat on the pine tree and laid the offending muff on a bough. Una saw that it was lined with shirred red satin and had red tassels. She looked down at her own rather purpled, chapped little hands and wondered if she would ever, ever be able to put them into a muff like that. "'Give us a chew,' said Mary companionably. Nan, Dye, and Faith all produced an amber-hued knot or two from their pockets and passed them to Mary. Una sat very still. She had four lovely big knots in the pocket of her tight, threadbare little jacket, but she wasn't going to give one of them to Mary Vance. Not one. Let Mary pick her own gum. People with squirrel muffs needn't expect to get everything in the world. "'Great day, isn't it?' said Mary, swinging her legs. The better, perhaps, to display new boots with very smart cloth tops." Una tucked her feet under her. There was a hole in the toe of one of her boots and both laces were much knotted. But they were the best she had. Oh, this Mary Vance! Why hadn't they left her in the old barn?" Una never felt badly because the Ingleside twins were better dressed than she and Faith were. They wore their pretty clothes with careless grace and never seemed to think about them at all. Somehow they did not make other people feel shabby. But when Mary Vance was dressed up she seemed fairly to exude clothes to walk in an atmosphere of clothes, to make everybody else feel and think clothes. Una, as she sat there in the honey-tinted sunshine of the gracious December afternoon, was acutely and miserably conscious of everything she had on—the faded tam which was yet her best, the skimpy jacket she had worn for three winters, the holes in her skirt and her boots, the shivering insufficiency of her poor little undergarments. Of course, Mary was going out for a visit and she was not but even if she had been she had nothing better to put on, and in this lay the sting. "'Say, this is great gum. Listen to me cracking it. There ain't any gum spruces down at Four Winds,' said Mary. "'Sometimes I just hanker after a chew. Mrs. Elliot won't let me chew gum if she sees me. She says it ain't ladylike. This lady business puzzles me. I can't get on to all its kinks. Say, Una, what's the matter with you? Cat got your tongue?' "'No,' said Una, who could not drag her fascinated eyes from that squirrel muff. Mary leaned past her, picked it up, and thrust it into Una's hands. "'Stick your paws in that for a while,' she ordered. "'They look sort of pinched. Ain't that a dandy muff? Mrs. Elliott give it to me last week for a birthday present. I'm to get the collar at Christmas. I heard her telling Mr. Elliot that.' "'Mrs. Elliot is very good to you,' said Faith. "And I'm good to her, too,' retorted Mary. "'I work like a nigger to make it easy for her and have everything just as she likes it. We was made for each other. Tisn't one could get along with her as well as I do. She's pisin' neat, but so am I, and so we agree fine." I told you she would never whip you. So you did. She's never tried to lay a finger on me, and I ain't never told a lie to her—not one. True's you live. She combs me down with her tongue sometimes, though, but that just slips off me like water off a duck's back. Say, Una, why didn't you hang on to the muff?" Una had put it back on the bow. "'My hands aren't cold, thank you,' she said stiffly. "'Well, if you're satisfied, I am.' Say, old kitty Alec has come back to church as meek as Moses and nobody knows why, but everybody is saying it was Faith brought Norman Douglas out. His housekeeper says you went there and gave him an awful tongue-lashing. Did you? I went and asked him to come to church," said Faith uncomfortably. Fancy your spunk, said Mary admiringly. I wouldn't have dared to do that, and I'm not so slow. Mrs. Wilson says the two of you jawed something scandalous, but you come off best, and then he just turned round and liked to eat you up say is your father going to preach here tomorrow no he's going to exchange with mr perry from charlottetown father went to town this morning and mr perry's coming out tonight i thought there was something in the wind though old martha wouldn't give me any satisfaction but i felt sure she wouldn't have been killing that rooster for nothing what rooster what do you mean cried faith turning pale i don't know what rooster i didn't see it when she took the butter mrs elliot sent up she said she'd been out to the barn killing a rooster for dinner tomorrow faith sprang down from the pine it's adam we have no other rooster she's killed adam now don't fly off the handle martha said the butcher at the glen had no meat this week and she had to have something and the hens were all laying and too poor if she's killed adam faith began to run up the hill mary shrugged her shoulders she'll go crazy now she was so fond of that adam he ought to have been in the pot long ago he'll be as tough as sole leather but i wouldn't like to be in martha's shoes Faith's just white with rage. Una, you'd better go after her and try to pacify her." Mary had gone a few steps with the Blythe girls when Una suddenly turned and ran after her. "'Here's some gum for you, Mary,' she said, with a little repentant catch in her voice, thrusting all her four knots into Mary's hands. And I'm glad you have such a pretty muff." "'Why, thanks,' said Mary, rather taken by surprise. To the Blythe girls, after Una had gone, she said, "'Ain't she a queer little mite? But I've always said she had a good heart." End of chapter eighteen. Chapter nineteen of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter nineteen. Poor Adam. When Una got home, Faith was lying face downwards on her bed, utterly refusing to be comforted. Aunt Martha had killed Adam. He was reposing on a platter in the pantry that very minute trussed and dressed, encircled by his liver and heart and gizzard. Aunt Martha heeded Faith's passion of grief and anger, not a whit. "'We had to have something for the strange minister's dinner,' she said. "'You're too big a girl to make such a fuss over an old rooster. You knew he'd have to be killed sometime. "'I'll tell father when he comes home what you've done,' sobbed Faith. "'Don't you go bothering your poor father. He has troubles enough, and I'm housekeeper here.' Adam was mine. Mrs. Johnson gave him to me. You had no business to touch him," stormed Faith. Don't you get sassy now. The rooster's killed and there's an end of it. I ain't going to set no strange minister down to a dinner of cold boiled mutton. I was brought up to know better than that—if I have come down in the world." Faith would not go down to supper that night, and she would not go to church the next morning. But at dinner-time she went to the table, her eyes swollen with crying, her face sullen. The Reverend James Perry was a sleek Rubicund man, with a bristling white moustache, bushy white eyebrows, and a shining bald head. He was certainly not handsome, and he was a very tiresome, pompous sort of person. But if he had looked like the Archangel Michael and talked with the tongues of men and angels, Faith would still have utterly detested him. He carved Adam up dexterously, showing off his plump white hands and very handsome diamond ring. Also he made jovial remarks all through the performance. Jerry and Carl giggled and even Una smiled wanly because she thought politeness demanded it. But Faith only scowled darkly. The Reverend James thought her manners shockingly bad. Once, when he was delivering himself of an unctuous remark to Jerry, Faith broke in rudely with a flat contradiction. The Reverend James drew his bushy eyebrows together at her. Little girls should not interrupt," he said, and they should not contradict people who know far more than they do. This put Faith in a worse temper than ever. To be called Little Girl, as if she were no bigger than chubby Rilla Blythe over at Ingleside, it was insufferable. And how that abominable Mr. Perry did eat! He even picked poor Adam's bones. Neither Faith nor Una would touch a mouthful and looked upon the boys as little better than cannibals. Faith felt that if that awful repast did not soon come to an end she would wind it up by throwing something at Mr. Perry's gleaming head. Fortunately Mr. Perry found Aunt Martha's leathery apple pie too much even for HIS powers of mastication, and the meal came to an end, after a long grace in which Mr. Perry offered up devout thanks for the food which a kind and beneficent providence had provided for sustenance and temperate pleasure. God hadn't a single thing to do with providing Adam for you muttered Faith rebelliously under her breath. The boys gladly made their escape to outdoors. Una went to help Aunt Martha with the dishes, though that rather grumpy old dame never welcomed her timid assistance, and Faith betook herself to the study, where a cheerful wood fire was burning in the grate. She thought she would thereby escape from the hated Mr. Perry, who had announced his intention of taking a nap in his room during the afternoon. But scarcely had Faith settled herself in a corner with the book when he walked in and, standing before the fire, proceeded to survey the disorderly study with an air of disapproval. "'Your father's books seem to be in somewhat deplorable confusion, my little girl,' he said severely. Faith darkled in her corner and said not a word. She would not talk to this—this creature. "'You should try to put them in order.' Mr. Perry went on, playing with his handsome watch-chain, and smiling patronizingly on Faith. "'You are quite old enough to attend to such duties. My little daughter at home is only ten, and she is already an excellent little housekeeper, and the greatest help and comfort to her mother. She is a very sweet child. I wish you had the privilege of her acquaintance. She could help you in many ways.' Of course, you have not had the inestimable privilege of a good mother's care and training. A sad lack, a very sad lack. I have spoken more than once to your father in this connection, and pointed out his duty to him faithfully, but so far with no effect. I trust he may awaken to a realization of his responsibility before it is too late. In the meantime, it is your duty and privilege to endeavor to take your sainted mother's place. You might exercise a great influence over your brothers and your little sister. You might be a true mother to them. I fear that you do not think of these things as you should. My dear child, allow me to open your eyes in regard to them." Mr. Perry's oily, complacent voice trickled on. He was in his element. Nothing suited him better than to lay down the law, patronize, and exhort. He had no idea of stopping, and he did not stop he stood before the fire his feet planted firmly on the rug and poured out a flood of pompous platitudes faith heard not a word she was really not listening to him at all but she was watching his long black coat-tails with impish delight growing in her brown eyes mr perry was standing very near the fire his coat-tails began to scorch his coat-tails began to smoke he still prosed on wrapped up in his own eloquence The coat tails smoked worse. A tiny spark flew up from the burning wood and alighted in the middle of one. It clung and caught and spread into a smouldering flame. Faith could restrain herself no longer and broke into a stifled giggle. Mr. Perry stopped short, angered over this impertinence. Suddenly he became conscious that a reek of burning cloth filled the room. He whirled round and saw nothing. Then he clapped his hands to his coat-tails and brought them around in front of him. There was already quite a hole in one of them, and this was his new suit. Faith shook with helpless laughter over his pose and expression. "'Did you see my coat-tails burning?' he demanded angrily. "'Yes, sir,' said Faith demurely. "'Why didn't you tell me?' he demanded, glaring at her. "'You said it wasn't good manners to interrupt, sir,' said Faith, more demurely still. "'If—if I was your father, I would give you a spanking that you would remember all your life, miss,' said a very angry reverend gentleman as he stalked out of the study. The coat of Mr. Meredith's second-best suit would not fit Mr. Perry, so he had to go to the evening service with his singed coat-tail. But he did not walk up the aisle with his usual consciousness of the honour he was conferring on the building. He never would agree to an exchange of pulpits with Mr. Meredith again, and he was barely civil to the latter when they met for a few minutes at the station the next morning. But Faith felt a certain gloomy satisfaction. Adam was partially avenged. End of chapter 19. Chapter 20 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 20. Faith Makes a Friend. Next day in school was a hard one for Faith. Mary Vance had told the tale of Adam and all the scholars except the Blythes thought it quite a joke. The girls told Faith between giggles that it was too bad, and the boys wrote sardonic notes of condolence to her. Poor Faith went home from school feeling her very soul raw and smarting within her. "'I'm going over to Ingleside to have a talk with Mrs. Blythe,' she sobbed. "'She won't laugh at me, as everybody else does. I've just GOT to talk to somebody who understands how bad I feel.'" She ran down through Rainbow Valley. Enchantment had been at work the night before. A light snow had fallen and the powdered firs were dreaming of a spring to come and a joy to be. The long hill beyond was richly purple with leafless beeches. The rosy light of sunset lay over the world like a pink kiss. Of all the airy, fairy places full of weird elfin grace, Rainbow Valley that winter evening was the most beautiful. But all its dreamlike loveliness was lost on poor, sore-hearted little Faith. By the brook she came suddenly upon Rosemary West, who was sitting on the old pine tree She was on her way home from Ingleside, where she had been giving the girls their music lesson. She had been lingering in Rainbow Valley quite a little time, looking across its white beauty and roaming some byways of dream. Judging from the expression of her face, her thoughts were pleasant ones. Perhaps the faint occasional tinkle from the bells on the tree-lovers brought the little lurking smile to her lips or perhaps it was occasioned by the consciousness that John Meredith seldom failed to spend Monday evening in the grey house on the white, wind-swept hill. Into Rosemary's dreams burst Faith Meredith, full of rebellious bitterness. Faith stopped abruptly when she saw Miss West. She did not know her very well—just well enough to speak to when they met. And she did not want to see any one just then, except Mrs. Blythe. She knew her eyes and nose were red and swollen and she hated to have a stranger know she had been crying. "'Good evening, Miss West,' she said uncomfortably. "'What is the matter, Faith?' asked Rosemary gently. "'Nothing,' said Faith rather shortly. "'Oh,' Rosemary smiled, "'you mean nothing you can tell to outsiders, don't you?' Faith looked at Miss West with sudden interest. Here was a person who understood things. And how pretty she was! How golden her hair was under her plumy hat! How pink her cheeks were over her velvet coat. How blue and companionable her eyes were. Faith felt that Miss West could be a lovely friend—if only she were a friend instead of a stranger. "'I—I'm going up to tell Mrs. Blythe,' said Faith. "'She always understands. She never laughs at us. I always talk things over with her. It helps.' "'Dear girlie, I'm sorry to have to tell you that Mrs. Blythe isn't home,' said Miss West sympathetically. "'She went to Avonlea today and isn't coming back till the last of the week.' Faith's lip quivered. "'Then I might as well go home again,' she said miserably. "'I suppose so. Unless you think you could bring yourself to talk it over with me instead,' said Miss Rosemary gently. "'It is such a help to talk things over. I know. I don't suppose I can be as good at understanding as Mrs. Blythe. But I promise you that I won't laugh.' "'You wouldn't laugh outside,' hesitated Faith. "'But you might—inside.' "'No. I wouldn't laugh inside, either. Why should I?' Something has hurt you. It never amuses me to see anybody hurt—no matter what hurts them. If you feel that you'd like to tell me what has hurt you I'll be glad to listen. But if you think you'd rather not that's all right too, dear." Faith took another long, earnest look into Miss West's eyes. They were very serious. There was no laughter in them—not even far, far back. With a little sigh she sat down on the old pine beside her new friend and told her all about Adam and his cruel fate. Rosemary did not laugh—or feel like laughing. She understood and sympathized. Really she was almost as good as Mrs. Blythe. Yes, quite as good. "'Mr. Perry is a minister, but he should have been a butcher,' said Faith bitterly. "'He is so fond of carving things up. He enjoyed cutting poor Adam to pieces. He just sliced into him as if he were any common rooster. Between you and me, Faith, I don't like Mr. Perry very well myself," said Rosemary, laughing a little, but at Mr. Perry, not at Adam, as Faith clearly understood. I never did like him. I went to school with him. He was a Glen boy, you know, and he was a most detestable little prig even then. Oh, how we girls used to hate holding his fat, clammy hands in the ring-around games. But we must remember, dear, that he didn't know that Adam had been a pet of yours. He thought he WAS just a common rooster. We must be just, even when we are terribly hurt." I suppose so, admitted Faith. But why does everybody seem to think it funny that I should have loved Adam so much, Miss West? If it had been a horrid old cat nobody would have thought it queer. When Lottie Warren's kitten had its legs cut off by the binder everybody was sorry for her. She cried two days in school and nobody laughed at her—not even Dan Reese. And all her chums went to the kitten's funeral and helped her bury it only they couldn't bury its poor little paws with it because they couldn't find them. It was a horrid thing to have happen, of course, but I don't think it was as dreadful as seeing your pet eaten up. Yet everybody laughs at me." "'I think it is because the name Rooster seems rather a funny one,' said Rosemary gravely. There is something in it that is comical. Now, chicken is different. It doesn't sound so funny to talk of loving a chicken. Adam was the dearest little chicken, Miss West. He was just a little golden ball. He would run up to me and peck out of my hand. And he was handsome when he grew up, too white as snow, with such a beautiful, curving white tail—though Mary Vance said it was too short. He knew his name and always came when I called him. He was a very intelligent rooster. And Aunt Martha had no right to kill him. He was mine. It wasn't fair, was it, Miss West?" No, it wasn't, said Rosemary decidedly. Not a bit fair. I remember I had a pet hen when I was a little girl. She was such a pretty little thing—all golden brown and speckly. I loved her as much as I ever loved any pet. She was never killed. She died of old age. Mother wouldn't have killed her because she was my pet." "'If my mother had been living she wouldn't have let Adam be killed,' said Faith. "'For that matter, Father wouldn't have either. If he'd been home and known of it, I'm sure he wouldn't, Miss West.' "'I'm sure, too,' said Rosemary. There was a little added flush on her face. She looked rather conscious, but Faith noticed nothing. "'Was it very wicked of me not to tell Mr. Perry his coat-tails were scorching?' she asked anxiously. "'Oh, terribly wicked,' answered Rosemary with dancing eyes. But I would have been just as naughty, Faith. I wouldn't have told him they were scorching, and I don't believe I would ever have been a bit sorry for my wickedness, either." Una thought I should have told him because he was a minister. "'Dearest, if a minister doesn't behave as a gentleman we are not bound to respect his coat-tails. I know I would have just loved to see Jimmy Perry's coat-tails burning up. It must have been fun.' Both laughed. But Faith ended with a bitter little sigh. "'Well, anyway, Adam is dead and I am never going to love anything again.' "'Don't say that, dear. We miss so much out of life if we don't love. The more we love the richer life is.' even if it is only some little furry or feathery pet. Would you like a canary, Faith—a little golden bit of a canary? If you would I'll give you one. We have two up home." Oh, I would like that," cried Faith. I love birds. Only—would Aunt Martha's cat eat it? It's so tragic to have your pets eaten—I don't think I could endure it a second time. If you hang the cage far enough from the wall I don't think the cat could harm it. I'll tell you just how to take care of it, and I'll bring it to Ingleside for you next time I come down." To herself, Rosemary was thinking, "'It will give every gossip in the Glen something to think of, but I WILL not care. I want to comfort this poor little heart.'" Faith was comforted. Sympathy and understanding were very sweet. She and Miss Rosemary sat on the old pine until the twilight crept softly down over the white valley and the evening star shone over the gray maple grove. Faith told Rosemary all her small history and hopes, her likes and dislikes, the ins and outs of life at the manse, the ups and downs of school society. Finally they parted, firm friends. Mr. Meredith was, as usual, lost in dreams when supper began that evening. But presently a name pierced his abstraction and brought him back to reality. Faith was telling Una of her meeting with Rosemary. She is just lovely, I think," said Faith, just as nice as Mrs. Blythe, but different. I felt as if I wanted to hug her. She did hug me—such a nice velvety hug—and she called me dearest. It thrilled me. I could tell her anything." "'So you liked Miss West, Faith?' Mr. Meredith asked with a rather odd intonation. "'I love her!' cried Faith. "'Ah!' said Mr. Meredith. "'Ah!' End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 21 The Impossible Word. John Meredith walked meditatively through the clear crispness of a winter night in Rainbow Valley. The hills beyond glistened with the chill, splendid luster of moonlight on snow. Every little fir tree in the long valley sang its own wild song to the harp of wind and frost. His children and the blithe lads and lasses were coasting down the eastern slope and whizzing over the glassy pond. They were having a glorious time, and their gay voices and gayer laughter echoed up and down the valley, dying away in elfin cadences among the trees. On the right the lights of Ingleside gleamed through the maple grove with the genial lure and invitation which seems always to glow in the beacons of a home where we know there is love and good cheer and a welcome for all kin, whether of flesh or spirit. Mr. Meredith liked very well, on occasion, to spend an evening arguing with the doctor by the driftwood fire, where the famous china dogs of Ingleside kept ceaseless watch and ward as became deities of the hearth. But to-night he did not look that way. Far on the western hill gleamed a paler but more alluring star. Mr. Meredith was on his way to see Rosemary West, and he meant to tell her something which had been slowly blossoming in his heart since their first meeting and had sprung into full flower on the evening when Faith had so warmly voiced her admiration for Rosemary. He had come to realize that he had learned to care for Rosemary. Not as he had cared for Cecilia, of course—that was entirely different. That love of romance and dream and glamour could never, he thought, return. But Rosemary was beautiful and sweet and dear—very dear. She was the best of companions. He was happier in her company than he had ever expected to be again. She would be an ideal mistress for his home, a good mother to his children. During the years of his widowhood Mr. Meredith had received innumerable hints from brother members of Presbytery, and from many parishioners, who could not be suspected of any ulterior motive—as well as from some who could—that he ought to marry again. But these hints never made any impression on him. It was commonly thought he was never aware of them. But he was quite acutely aware of them. And in his own occasional visitations of common sense, he knew that the common sensible thing for him to do was to marry. But common sense was not the strong point of john Meredith, and to choose out deliberately and cold bloodedly some suitable woman, as one might choose a housekeeper or a business partner, was something he was quite incapable of doing. How he hated that word, suitable! It reminded him so strongly of James Perry. A suitable woman of suitable age, that unctuous brother of the cloth had said in his far from subtle hint. For the moment John Meredith had had a perfectly unbelievable desire to rush madly away and propose marriage to the youngest, most unsuitable woman it was possible to discover. Mrs. Marshall Elliott was his good friend and he liked her but when she had bluntly told him he should marry again he felt as if she had torn away the veil that hung before some sacred shrine of his innermost life, and he had been more or less afraid of her ever since. He knew there were women in his congregation of suitable age who would marry him quite readily. That fact had seeped through all his abstraction very early in his ministry in Glen St. Mary. They were good, substantial, uninteresting women—one or two fairly comely, the other is not exactly so, and John Meredith would as soon have thought of marrying any one of them as of hanging himself. He had some ideals to which no seeming necessity could make him false. He could ask no woman to fill Cecilia's place in his home, unless he could offer her at least some of the affection and homage he had given to his girlish bride. And where, in his limited feminine acquaintance, was such a woman to be found? Rosemary West had come into his life on that autumn evening, bringing with her an atmosphere in which his spirit recognized native air. Across the gulf of strangerhood they clasped hands of friendship. He knew her better in that ten minutes by the hidden spring than he knew Emmeline Drew or Elizabeth Kirk or Amy Annetta Douglas in a year, or could know them in a century. He had fled to her for comfort when Mrs. Alec Davis had outraged his mind and soul, and had found it. Since then he had gone often to the house on the hill, slipping through the shadowy paths of night in Rainbow Valley so astutely that Glen Gossip could never be absolutely certain that he DID go to see Rosemary West. Once or twice he had been caught in the West living room by other visitors. That was all the ladies' aid had to go by. But when Elizabeth Kirk heard it she put away a secret hope she had allowed herself to cherish without a change of expression on her kind, plain face and Emmeline Drew resolved that the next time she saw a certain old bachelor of Lowbridge she would not snub him, as she had done at a previous meeting. Of course, if Rosemary West was out to catch the minister she would catch him. She looked younger than she was, and men thought her pretty. Besides, the West girls had money. It is to be hoped that he won't be so absent-minded as to propose to Ellen by mistake, was the only malicious thing she allowed herself to say to a sympathetic sister, Drew. Emmeline bore no further grudge towards Rosemary. When all was said and done an unencumbered bachelor was far better than a widower with four children. It had been only the glamour of the manse that had temporarily blinded Emmeline's eyes to the better part. A sled with three shrieking occupants sped past Mr. Meredith to the pond. Faith's long curls streamed in the wind and her laughter rang above that of the others. John Meredith looked after them kindly and longingly. He was glad that his children had such chums as the Blythes—glad that they had so wise and gay and tender a friend as Mrs. Blythe—but they needed something more, and that something would be supplied when he brought Rosemary West as a bride to the old manse. There was in her a quality essentially maternal. It was Saturday night, and he did not often go calling on Saturday night, which was supposed to be dedicated to a thoughtful revision of Sunday's sermon. But he had chosen this night because he had learned that Ellen West was going to be away, and Rosemary would be alone. Often as he had spent pleasant evenings in the house on the hill he had never, since that first meeting at the spring, seen Rosemary alone. Ellen had always been there. He did not precisely object to Ellen being there. He liked Ellen West very much and they were the best of friends. Ellen had an almost masculine understanding and a sense of humour which his own shy, hidden appreciation of fun found very agreeable. He liked her interest in politics and world events. There was no man in the Glen, not even excepting Dr. Blythe, who had a better grasp of such things. "'I think it is just as well to be interested in things as long as you live,' she had said. "'If you're not, it doesn't seem to me that there's much difference between the quick and the dead.' He liked her pleasant, deep, rumbly voice. He liked the hearty laugh with which she always ended up some jolly and well-told story. She never gave him digs about his children as other Glen women did. She never bored him with local gossip. She had no malice and no pettiness. She was always splendidly sincere. Mr. Meredith, who had picked up Miss Cornelia's way of classifying people, considered that Ellen belonged to the race of Joseph. Altogether an admirable woman for a sister-in-law. Nevertheless, A man did not want even the most admirable of women around when he was proposing to another woman. And Ellen was always around. She did not insist on talking to Mr. Meredith herself all the time. She let Rosemary have a fair share of him. Many evenings, indeed, Ellen effaced herself almost totally, sitting back in the corner with St. George in her lap and letting Mr. Meredith and Rosemary talk and sing and read books together. Sometimes they quite forgot her presence. But if their conversation or choice of duets ever betrayed the least tendency to what Ellen considered philandering, Ellen promptly nipped that tendency in the bud and blotted rosemary out for the rest of the evening. But not even the grimmest of amiable dragons can altogether prevent a certain subtle language of eye and smile and eloquent silence. And so the minister's courtship progressed after a fashion. But if it was ever to reach a climax, That climax must come when Ellen was away. And Ellen was so seldom away—especially in winter. She found her own fireside the pleasantest place in the world, she vowed. Gadding had no attraction for her. She was fond of company, but she wanted it at home. Mr. Meredith had almost been driven to the conclusion that he must write to Rosemary what he wanted to say when Ellen casually announced one evening that she was going to a silver wedding next Saturday night. She had been bridesmaid when the principals were married. Only old guests were invited, so Rosemary was not included. Mr. Meredith pricked up his ears a trifle and a gleam flashed into his dreamy, dark eyes. Both Ellen and Rosemary saw it. And both Ellen and Rosemary felt, with a tingling shock, that Mr. Meredith would certainly come up the hill next Saturday night. Might as well have it over with, St. George. Ellen sternly told the black cat after Mr. Meredith had gone home and Rosemary had silently gone upstairs. He means to ask her, St. George. I'm perfectly sure of that. So he might as well have his chance to do it and find out he can't get her, George. She'd rather like to take him, Saint—I know that—but she promised and she's got to keep her promise. I'm rather sorry in some way, St. George. I don't know of a man I'd sooner have for a brother-in-law—if a brother-in-law was convenient. I haven't a thing against him, Saint—not a thing—except that he won't see and can't be made to see that the Kaiser is a menace to the peace of Europe. That's HIS blind spot. But he's good company and I like him. A woman can say anything she likes to a man with a mouth like John Meredith's and be sure of not being misunderstood. Such a man is more precious than rubies, Saint, and much rarer, George. But he can't have Rosemary, and I suppose when he finds out he can't have her he'll drop us both." And we'll miss him, Saint. We'll miss him something scandalous, George. But she promised—and I'll see that she keeps her promise." Ellen's face looked almost ugly in its lowering resolution. Upstairs, Rosemary was crying into her pillow. So Mr. Meredith found his lady alone and looking very beautiful. Rosemary had not made any special toilet for the occasion. She wanted to, but she thought it would be absurd to dress up for a man you meant to refuse. So she wore her plain dark afternoon dress and looked like a queen in it. Her suppressed excitement coloured her face to brilliancy. Her great blue eyes were pools of light less placid than usual. She wished the interview were over. She had looked forward to it all day with dread. She felt quite sure that John Meredith cared a great deal for her after a fashion, and she felt just as sure that he did not care for her as he had cared for his first love. She felt that her refusal would disappoint him considerably, but she did not think it would altogether overwhelm him. Yet she hated to make it—hated for his sake—and Rosemary was quite honest with herself—for her own. She knew she could have loved John Meredith if—if it had been permissible. She knew that life would be a blank thing if, rejected as lover, he refused longer to be a friend. She knew that she could be very happy with him, and that she could make him happy but between her and happiness stood the prison gate of the promise she had made to Ellen years ago. Rosemary could not remember her father. He had died when she was only three years old. Ellen, who had been thirteen, remembered him, but with no special tenderness. He had been a stern, reserved man many years older than his fair, pretty wife. Five years later their brother of twelve died also. Since his death the two girls had always lived alone with their mother. They had never mingled very freely in the social life of the Glen or Lowbridge, though where they went the wit and spirit of Ellen and the sweetness and beauty of Rosemary made them welcome guests. Both had what was called a disappointment in their girlhood. The sea had not given up Rosemary's lover, and Norman Douglas, then a handsome, red-haired young giant, noted for wild driving and noisy though harmless escapades, had quarrelled with Ellen and left her in a fit of pique. There were not lacking candidates for both Martin's and Norman's places, but none seemed to find favour in the eyes of the West girls, who drifted slowly out of youth and bell-hood without any seeming regret. They were devoted to their mother, who was a chronic invalid. The three had a little circle of home interests—books, pets, and flowers—which made them happy and contented. Mrs. West's death, which occurred on Rosemary's twenty-fifth birthday, was a bitter grief to them. At first they were intolerably lonely. Ellen especially continued to grieve and brood, her long moody musings broken only by fits of stormy, passionate weeping. The old Lowbridge doctor told Rosemary that he feared permanent melancholy, or worse. Once, when Ellen had sat all day, refusing either to speak or eat, Rosemary had flung herself on her knees by her sister's side. Oh, Ellen, you have me yet," she said imploringly. "'Am I nothing to you? We have always loved each other so.' "'I won't have you always,' Ellen had said, breaking her silence with harsh intensity. "'You will marry and leave me. I shall be left all alone. I cannot bear the thought—I cannot. I would rather die.' "'I will never marry,' said Rosemary. Never, Ellen." Ellen bent forward and looked searchingly into Rosemary's eyes. "'Will you promise me that solemnly?' she said promise it on Mother's Bible." Rosemary assented at once, quite willing to humour Ellen. What did it matter? She knew quite well she would never want to marry anyone. Her love had gone down with Martin Crawford to the deeps of the sea and without love she could not marry anyone. So she promised readily—though Ellen made rather a fearsome right of it. They clasped hands over the Bible, in their mother's vacant room, and both vowed to each other that they would never marry and would always live together. Ellen's condition improved from that hour. She soon regained her normal cheery poise. For ten years she and Rosemary lived in the old house happily, undisturbed by any thoughts of marrying or giving in marriage. Their promise sat very lightly on them. Ellen never failed to remind her sister of it whenever any eligible male creature crossed their paths, but she had never been really alarmed until John Meredith came home that night with Rosemary. As for Rosemary, Ellen's obsession regarding that promise had always been a little matter of mirth to her—until lately. Now it was a merciless fetter, self-imposed, but never to be shaken off. Because of it, to-night, she must turn her face from happiness. It was true that the shy, sweet, rosebud love she had given to her boy lover she could never give to another. But she knew now that she could give to John Meredith a love richer and more womanly. She knew that he touched deeps in her nature that Martin had never touched—that had not, perhaps, been in the girl of seventeen to touch. And she must send him away to-night, send him back to his lonely hearth and his empty life and his heart-breaking problems, because she had promised Ellen, ten years before, on their mother's Bible, that she would never marry. John Meredith did not immediately grasp his opportunity. On the contrary, he talked for two good hours on the least lover like of subjects. He even tried politics, though politics always bored Rosemary. The latter began to think that she had been altogether mistaken, and her fears and expectations suddenly seemed to her grotesque. She felt flat and foolish. The glow went out of her face and the luster out of her eyes. John Meredith had not the slightest intention of asking her to marry him. And then, quite suddenly, he rose came across the room and, standing by her chair, he asked it. The room had grown terribly still. Even St. George ceased to purr. Rosemary heard her own heart beating and was sure John Meredith must hear it too. Now was the time for her to say no, gently but firmly. She had been ready for days with her stilted, regretful little formula, and now the words of it had completely vanished from her mind. She had to say no and she suddenly found she could not say it it was the impossible word. She knew now that it was not that she COULD have loved John Meredith, but that she DID love him. The thought of putting him from her life was agony. She must say SOMETHING. She lifted her bowed golden head and asked him stammeringly to give her a few days for—for consideration. John Meredith was a little surprised. He was not vainer than any man has a right to be, but he had expected that Rosemary West would say yes he had been tolerably sure she cared for him. Then why this doubt—this hesitation? She was not a schoolgirl, to be uncertain as to her own mind. He felt an ugly shock of disappointment and dismay. But he assented to her request with his unfailing gentle courtesy and went away at once. "'I will tell you in a few days,' said Rosemary, with downcast eyes and burning face. When the door shut behind him she went back into the room and wrung her hands. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery This LibriVox recording is in the public domain recording by Karen Savage Chapter 22 St George knows all about it At midnight Ellen West was walking home from the Pollack silver wedding She had stayed a little while after the other guests had gone to help the gray-haired bride wash the dishes the distance between the two houses was not far and the road good, so that Ellen was enjoying the walk back home in the moonlight. The evening had been a pleasant one. Ellen, who had not been to a party for years, found it very pleasant. All the guests had been members of her old set and there was no intrusive youth to spoil the flavour, for the only son of the bride and groom was far away at college and could not be present. Norman Douglas had been there and they had met socially for the first time in years, though she had seen him once or twice in church that winter. Not the least sentiment was awakened in Ellen's heart by their meeting. She was accustomed to wonder, when she thought about it at all, how she could have ever fancied him or felt so badly over his sudden marriage. But she had rather liked meeting him again. She had forgotten how bracing and stimulating he could be. No gathering was ever stagnant when Norman Douglas was present everybody had been surprised when norman came it was well known he never went anywhere the pollocks had invited him because he had been one of the original guests but they never thought he would come he had taken his second cousin amy annetta douglas out to supper and seemed rather attentive to her but ellen sat across the table from him and had a spirited argument with him an argument during which all his shouting and banter could not fluster her, and in which she came off best, flooring Norman so composedly—and so completely—that he was silent for ten minutes. At the end of which time he had muttered in his ruddy beard, "'Spunky as ever! Spunky as ever!' and began to hector Amy and Netta, who giggled foolishly over his sallies, where Ellen would have retorted bitingly. Ellen thought these things over as she walked home, tasting them with reminiscent relish. The moonlit air sparkled with frost, the snow crisped under her feet. Below her lay the glen with the white harbor beyond. There was a light in the manse study. So, John Meredith had gone home. Had he asked Rosemary to marry him? And after what fashion had she made her refusal known? Ellen felt that she would never know this, though she was quite curious. She was sure Rosemary would never tell her anything about it, and she would not dare to ask. She must just be content with the fact of the refusal. After all, that was the only thing that really mattered. "'I hope you'll have enough sense to come back once in a while and be friendly,' she said to herself. She disliked so much to be alone that thinking aloud was one of her devices for circumventing unwelcome solitude. It's awful never to have a man-body with some brains to talk to once in a while. And like as not he'll never come near the house again. There's Norman Douglas, too—I like that man, and I'd like to have a good rousing argument with him now and then, but he'd never dare come up for fear people would think he was courting me again—for fear I'd think it too, most likely, though he's more a stranger to me now than John Meredith. It seems like a dream that we could ever have been bows. But there it is—there's only two men in the Glen I'd ever want to talk to—and what with gossip and this wretched love-making business, it's not likely I'll ever see either of them again." I could," said Ellen, addressing the unmoved stars with a spiteful emphasis. I could have made a better world myself. She paused at her gate with a sudden vague feeling of alarm. There was still a light in the living room and to and fro across the window shades went the shadow of a woman walking restlessly up and down. What was Rosemary doing up at this hour of the night? And why was she striding about like a lunatic? Ellen went softly in. As she opened the hall door, Rosemary came out of the room. She was flushed and breathless. An atmosphere of stress and passion hung about her like a garment. "'Why aren't you in bed, Rosemary?' demanded Ellen. "'Come in here,' said Rosemary intensely. "'I want to tell you something.'" Ellen composedly removed her wraps and overshoes and followed her sister into the warm, fire-lighted room. She stood with her hand on the table and waited. She was looking very handsome herself, in her own grim, black-browed style. The new black velvet dress, with its train and v-neck, which she had made purposely for the party, became her stately, massive figure. She wore coiled around her neck the rich, heavy necklace of amber beads which was a family heirloom. Her walk in the frosty air had stung her cheeks into a glowing scarlet. But her steel-blue eyes were as icy and unyielding as the sky of the winter night. She stood waiting in a silence which Rosemary could break only by a convulsive effort. Ellen—Mr. Meredith was here this evening. Yes? And—and—he asked me to marry him. So I expected. Of course she refused him. No—Rosemary! Ellen clenched her hands and took an involuntary step forward. Do you mean to tell me that you accepted him? No—no—Ellen recovered her self-command. What DID you do then? I. I asked him to give me a few days to think it over." "'I hardly see why that was necessary,' said Ellen, coldly contemptuous, when there is only one answer you can make him." Rosemary held out her hands beseechingly. "'Ellen,' she said desperately, "'I love John Meredith. I want to be his wife. Will you set me free from that promise?' "'No,' said Ellen, merciless, because she was sick from fear. "'Ellen—Ellen—Listen!' interrupted Ellen. I did not ask you for that promise. You offered it. I know, I know. But I did not think then that I could ever care for anyone again." "'You offered it,' went on Ellen unmovably. "'You promised it over our mother's Bible. It was more than a promise—it was an oath. Now you want to break it.' "'I only asked you to set me free from it, Ellen. I will not do it. A promise is a promise in my eyes. I will not do it break your promise—be forsworn if you will—but it shall not be with any assent of mine." "'You are very hard on me, Ellen." "'Hard on you? And what of me? Have you ever given a thought to what my loneliness would be if you left me? I could not bear it. I would go crazy. I cannot live alone. Haven't I been a good sister to you? Have I ever opposed any wish of yours? Haven't I indulged you in everything? Yes—yes. Then why do you want to leave me for this man whom you hadn't seen a year ago?" "'I love him, Ellen. Love, You talk like a school miss instead of a middle-aged woman. He doesn't love you. He wants a housekeeper and a governess. You don't love him. You want to be Mrs. You are one of those weak-minded women who think it's a disgrace to be ranked as an old maid. That's all there is to it." Rosemary quivered. Ellen could not—or would not—understand. There was no use arguing with her. So you won't release me, Ellen? No, I won't. And I won't talk of it again. You promised—and you've got to keep your word. That's all. Go to bed—look at the time. You're all romantic and worked up. Tomorrow you'll be more sensible. At any rate don't let me hear any more of this nonsense. Go." Rosemary went without another word, pale and spiritless. Ellen walked stormily about the room for a few minutes, then paused before the chair where St. George had been calmly sleeping through the whole evening. A reluctant smile overspread her dark face. There had only been one time in her life—the time of her mother's death—when Ellen had not been able to temper tragedy with comedy. Even in that long-ago bitterness, when Norman Douglas had, after a fashion, jilted her, she had laughed at herself quite as often as she had cried. "'I expect there'll be some sulking, St. George. Yes, Saint, I expect we are in for a few unpleasant, foggy days. Well, we'll weather them through, George.' We've dealt with foolish children before, Saint. Rosemary'll sulk a while—and then she'll get over it and all will be as before, George. She promised—and she's got to keep her promise. And that's the last word on the subject I'll say to you or her or anyone, Saint." But Ellen lay savagely awake till morning. There was no sulking, however. Rosemary was pale and quiet the next day, but beyond that Ellen could detect no difference in her certainly she seemed to bear Ellen no grudge. It was stormy, so no mention was made of going to church. In the afternoon Rosemary shut herself in her room and wrote a note to John Meredith. She could not trust herself to say no in person. She felt quite sure that if he suspected she was saying no reluctantly he would not take it for an answer, and she could not face pleading or entreaty. She must make him think she cared nothing at all for him, and she could do that only by letter. She wrote him the stiffest, coolest little refusal imaginable. It was barely courteous. It certainly left no loophole of hope for the boldest lover. And John Meredith was anything but that. He shrank into himself, hurt and mortified, when he read Rosemary's letter next day in his dusty study. But under his mortification a dreadful realization presently made itself felt. He had thought he did not love Rosemary as deeply as he had loved Cecilia. Now, when he had lost her, he knew that he did. She was everything to him—everything. And he must put her out of his life completely. Even friendship was impossible now. Life stretched before him in intolerable dreariness. He must go on. There was his his work—his children—but the heart had gone out of him. He sat all alone that evening in his dark, cold, comfortless study with his head bowed in his hands. Up on the hill Rosemary had a headache and went early to bed, while Ellen remarked to St. George purring his disdain of foolish humankind who did not know that a soft cushion was the only thing that really mattered. What would women do if headaches had never been invented, St. George? But never mind, Saint. We'll just wink the other eye for a few weeks. I admit I don't feel comfortable myself, George. I feel as if I had drowned a kitten. But she promised, Saint, and she was the one to offer it, George. Bismillah! End of chapter 22. Chapter 23 of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter 23 The Good Conduct Club. A light rain had been falling all day, a little, delicate, beautiful spring rain that somehow seemed to hint and whisper of mayflowers and wakening violets the harbour and the gulf and the low-lying shore-fields had been dim with pearl-grey mists but now in the evening the rain had ceased and the mists had blown out to sea clouds sprinkled the sky over the harbour like little fiery roses beyond it the hills were dark against a spendthrift splendour of daffodil and crimson a great silvery evening star was watching over the bar a brisk dancing new-sprung wind was blowing up from rainbow valley resinous with the odors of fir and damp mosses it crooned in the old spruces around the graveyard and ruffled faith's splendid curls as she sat on hezekiah pollock's tombstone with her arms round mary vance and una carl and jerry were sitting opposite them on another tombstone and all were rather full of mischief after being cooped up all day the air just shines to-night doesn't it it's been washed so clean, you see," said Faith happily. Mary Vance eyed her gloomily. Knowing what she knew—or fancied she knew—Mary considered that Faith was far too light-hearted. Mary had something on her mind to say, and she meant to say it before she went home. Mrs. Elliot had sent her up to the manse with some new-laid eggs and had told her not to stay longer than half an hour. The half-hour was nearly up, so Mary uncurled her cramped legs from under her and said abruptly, "'Never mind about the air. Just you listen to me. You manse young ones have just GOT to behave yourselves better than you've been doing this spring. That's all there is to it. I just come up tonight a purpose to tell you. The way people are talking about you is awful.' "'What have we been doing now?' cried Faith in amazement, pulling her arm away from Mary. Una's lips trembled and her sensitive little soul shrank within her. Mary was always so brutally frank. Jerry began to whistle out of bravado. He meant to let Mary see he didn't care for her tirades. Their behavior was no business of hers, anyway. What right had she to lecture them on their conduct? "'Doing now? You're doing all the time,' retorted Mary. "'Just as soon as the talk about one of your didos fades away, you do something else to start it up again. It seems to me you haven't any idea of how man's children ought to behave.' "'Maybe you can tell us.' said Jerry, killingly sarcastic. Sarcasm was quite thrown away on Mary. I can tell you what will happen if you don't learn to behave yourselves. The session will ask your father to resign. There, now, Master Jerry know-it-all. Mrs. Alec Davis said so to Mrs. Elliot. I heard her. I always have my ears pricked up when Mrs. Alec Davis comes to tea." She said you were all going from bad to worse and that though it was only what was to be expected when you had nobody to bring you up, still the congregation couldn't be expected to put up with it much longer and something would have to be done. The Methodists just laugh and laugh at you and that hurts the Presbyterian feelings. She says you all need a good dose of birch tonic. Lor, if that would make folks good I ought to be a young saint. I'm not telling you this because I want to hurt your feelings. I'm sorry for you." Mary was past mistress of the gentle art of condescension. I understand that you haven't much chance, the way things are, but other people don't make as much allowance as I do. Miss Drew says Carl had a frog in his pocket in Sunday school last Sunday and it hopped out while she was hearing the lesson. She says she's going to give up the class. Why don't you keep your insects home?" "'I popped it right back in again,' said Carl. "'It didn't hurt anybody, a poor little frog. And I wish old Jane Drew would give up our class. I hate her.' Her own nephew had a dirty plug of tobacco in his pocket and offered us fellows a chew when Elder Clow was praying. I guess that's worse than a frog." "'No, cause frogs are more unexpected-like. They make more of a sensation. Besides, he wasn't caught at it. And then that praying competition you had last week has made a fearful scandal. Everybody's talking about it." "'Why, the Blythes were in that as well as us,' cried Faith indignantly. It was Nan Blythe who suggested it in the first place, and Walter took the prize. Well, you get the credit of it anyway. It wouldn't have been so bad if you hadn't had it in the graveyard." "'I should think a graveyard was a very good place to pray in,' retorted Jerry. "'Deacon Hazard drove past when you were praying,' said Mary, and he saw and heard you with your hands folded over your stomach and groaning after every sentence. He thought you were making fun of him." "'So I was,' declared unabashed Jerry. Only I didn't know he was going by, of course. That was just a mean accident." I wasn't praying in real earnest. I knew I had no chance of winning the prize, so I was just getting what fun I could out of it. Walter Blythe can pray bully. Why, he can pray as well as Dad." "'Una is the only one of us who really likes praying,' said Faith pensively. "'Well, if praying scandalizes people so much we mustn't do it any more,' sighed Una. "'Shucks, you can pray all you want to, only not in the graveyard. And don't make a game of it. That was what made it so bad—that and having a tea party on the tombstones.' We hadn't. Well, a soap-bubble party, then. You had something. The over-harbour people swear you had a tea-party, but I'm willing to take your word. And you used this tombstone as a table. Well, Martha wouldn't let us blow bubbles in the house. She was awful cross that day," explained Jerry, and this old slab made such a jolly table. "'Weren't they pretty?' cried Faith, her eyes sparkling over the remembrance. They reflected the trees and the hills and the harbour like little fairy worlds and when we shook them loose they floated away down to rainbow valley all but one and it went over and bust up on the methodist spire said carl i'm glad we did it once anyhow before we found out it was wrong said faith it wouldn't have been wrong to blow them on the lawn said mary impatiently seems like i can't knock any sense into your heads you've been told often enough you shouldn't play in the graveyard the methodists are sensitive about it We forget," said Faith dolefully, and the lawn is so small and so caterpillary and so full of shrubs and things. We can't be in Rainbow Valley all the time. And where are we to go?" It's the things you do in the graveyard. It wouldn't matter if you just sat here and talked quiet, same as we're doing now. Well, I don't know what is going to come of it all. But I do know that Elder Warren is going to speak to your pa about it. Deacon Hazard is his cousin. I wish they wouldn't bother father about us," said Una. Well, people think he ought to bother himself about you a little more. I don't. I understand him. He's a child in some ways himself—that's what he is—and needs someone to look after him as bad as you do. Well, perhaps you'll have someone before long, if all tales is true." What do you mean? asked Faith. Haven't you got any idea—honest? demanded Mary. No, no. What do you mean? "'Well, you are a lot of innocence, upon my word. Why, everybody is talking of it. Your pa goes to see Rosemary West. She is going to be your stepma. "'I don't believe it,' cried Una, flushing crimson. "'Well, I dunno. I just go by what folks say. I don't give it for a fact. But it would be a good thing. Rosemary West'd make you toe the mark if she came here. I'll bet a cent, for all she's so sweet and smiley on the face of her. They're always that way till they've caught em but you need SOMEONE to bring you up. You're disgracing your pa and I feel for him. I've always thought an awful lot of your pa ever since that night he talked to me so nice. I've never said a SINGLE swear word since or told a lie, and I'd like to see him happy and comfortable with his buttons on and his meals decent and you young ones licked into shape and that old cat of a Martha put in HER proper place. The way she looked at the eggs I brought her tonight—I hope they're fresh," says she. I just wished they WAS rotten. But just you mind she gives you all one for breakfast, including your pa. Make a fuss if she doesn't. That was what they was sent up for. But I don't trust old Martha. She's quite capable of feeding them to her cat." Mary's tongue being temporarily tired, a brief silence fell over the graveyard. The man's children did not feel like talking. They were digesting the new and not altogether palatable ideas Mary had suggested to them. Jerry and Carl were somewhat startled. But after all, what did it matter? and it wasn't likely there was a word of truth in it. Faith, on the whole, was pleased. Only Una was seriously upset. She felt that she would like to get away and cry. "'Will there be any stars in my crown?' sang the Methodist choir, beginning to practice in the Methodist church. "'I just want three,' said Mary, whose theological knowledge had increased notably since her residence with Mrs. Elliot. Just three—setting up on my head like a caronet—a big one in the middle and a small one, each size." Are there different sizes and souls? asked Carl. Of course. Why, little babies must have smaller ones than big men. Well, it's getting dark and I must scoot home. Mrs. Elliot doesn't like me to be out after dark. Laws, when I lived with Mrs. Wiley the dark was just the same as the daylight to me. I didn't mind it no more'n a gray cat. Them days seem a hundred years ago. Now you mind what I've said and try to behave yourselves for your pa's sake. I'll always back you up and defend you—you you can be dead sure of that. Mrs. Elliot says she never saw the like of me for sticking up for my friends. I was real sassy to Mrs. Alec Davis about you and Mrs. Elliot combed me down for it afterwards. The fair Cornelia has a tongue of her own and no mistake. But she was pleased underneath for all, cause she hates old kitty Alec and she's real fond of you. I can see through, folks." Mary sailed off, excellently well pleased with herself, leaving a rather depressed little group behind her. Mary Vance always says something that makes us feel bad when she comes up," said Una resentfully. "'I wish we'd left her to starve in the old barn,' said Jerry vindictively. "'Oh, that's wicked, Jerry,' rebuked Una. "'May as well have the game as the name,' retorted unrepentant Jerry. "'If people say we're so bad, let's be bad.' "'But not if it hurts father,' pleaded Faith." Jerry squirmed uncomfortably. He adored his father. Through the unshaded study window they could see Mr. Meredith at his desk. He did not seem to be either reading or writing. His head was in his hands and there was something in his whole attitude that spoke of weariness and dejection. The children suddenly felt it. "'I dare say somebody's been worrying him about us today," said Faith. "'I wish we could get along without making people talk. Oh! Jem Blythe, how you scared me!' Jem Blythe had slipped into the graveyard and sat down beside the girls. He had been prowling about Rainbow Valley and had succeeded in finding the first little star-white cluster of arbutus for his mother. The manse children were rather silent after his coming. Jem was beginning to grow away from them somewhat this spring. He was studying for the entrance examination of Queen's Academy and stayed after school with the older pupils for extra lessons. Also his evenings were so full of work that he seldom joined the others in Rainbow Valley now. He seemed to be drifting away into grown-up land. What is the matter with you all tonight?" he asked. There's no fun in you. Not much, agreed Faith dolefully. There wouldn't be much fun in you, either, if YOU knew you were disgracing your father and making people talk about you. Who's been talking about you now? Everybody, so Mary Vance says. And Faith poured out her troubles to sympathetic Jem. You see, she concluded dolefully, we've nobody to bring us up. And so we get into scrapes and people think we're bad. Why don't you just bring yourselves up?" suggested Jem. I'll tell you what to do. Form a good conduct club and punish yourselves every time you do anything that's not right. That's a good idea," said Faith, struck by it. But, she added doubtfully, things that don't seem a bit of harm to us seem simply dreadful to other people. How can we tell? We can't be bothering Father all the time, and he has to be away a lot anyhow. You could mostly tell if you stopped to think a thing over before doing it and ask yourselves what the congregation would say about it," said Jem. "'The trouble is you just rush into things and don't think them over at all. Mother says you're all too impulsive, just as she used to be. The Good Conduct Club would help you to think—if you were fair and honest about punishing yourselves when you broke the rules. You'd have to punish in some way that really hurt or it wouldn't do any good.' "'Whip each other?' "'Not exactly. You'd have to think up different ways of punishment to suit the person. You wouldn't punish each other—you'd punish yourselves. I read all about such a club in a storybook. You try it and see how it works." "'Let's,' said Faith. And when Jem was gone they agreed they would. "'If things aren't right we just got to make them right,' said Faith resolutely. "'We've got to be fair and square, as Jem says,' said Jerry. This is a club to bring ourselves up, seeing there's nobody else to do it. There's no use in having many rules. Let's just have one, and any of us that breaks it has got to be punished hard." But how? We'll think that up as we go along. We'll hold a session of the club here in the graveyard every night and talk over what we've done through the day, and if we think we've done anything that isn't right or that would disgrace Dad, the one that does it or is responsible for it must be punished. That's the rule. We'll all decide on the kind of punishment. It must be made to fit the crime, as Mr. Flagg says." and the one that's guilty will be bound to carry it out and no shirking." "'There's going to be fun in this,' concluded Jerry with a relish. "'You suggested the soap-bubble party,' said Faith. "'But that was before we'd formed the club,' said Jerry hastily. "'Everything starts from tonight. "'But what if we can't agree on what's right or what the punishment ought to be? Suppose two of us thought of one thing and two of another—there ought to be five in a club like this." We can ask Jem Blythe to be umpire—he's the squarest boy in Glen St. Mary. But I guess we can settle our own affairs, mostly. We want to keep this as much of a secret as we can. Don't breathe a WORD to Mary Vance. She'd want to join and do the bringing up." I think, said Faith, that there's no use in spoiling every day by dragging punishments in. Let's have a punishment day. We'd better choose Saturday because there's no school to interfere," suggested Una. "'And spoil the one holiday in the week,' cried Faith. Not much. No, let's take Friday. That's fish day, anyhow, and we all hate fish. We may as well have all the disagreeable things in one day. Then other days we can go ahead and have a good time." Nonsense," said Jerry authoritatively. Such a scheme wouldn't work at all. We'll just punish ourselves as we go along and keep a clear slate. Now we all understand, don't we? This is a good conduct club for the purpose of bringing ourselves up. We agree to punish ourselves for bad conduct and always to stop before we do anything, no matter what, and ask ourselves if it is likely to hurt Dad in any way. And anyone who shirks is to be cast out of the club and never allowed to play with the rest of us in Rainbow Valley again. Jem Blythe to be umpire in case of disputes. No more taking bugs to Sunday school, Carl, and no more chewing gum in public, if you please, Miss Faith." No more making fun of elders praying or going to the Methodist prayer meeting," retorted Faith. Why, it isn't any harm to go to the Methodist prayer meeting," protested Jerry in amazement. Mrs. Elliot says it is. She says man's children have no business to go anywhere but to Presbyterian things. "'Darn it, I won't give up going to Methodist prayer meeting,' cried Jerry. "'It's ten times more fun than ours is.' "'You said a naughty word,' cried Faith. "'Now you've got to punish yourself.' Not till it's all down in black and white. We're only talking the club over. It isn't really formed until we've written it out and signed it." There's got to be a constitution and by-laws. And you KNOW there's nothing wrong in going to a prayer-meeting. But it's not only the wrong things we're to punish ourselves for, but anything that might hurt Father—'It won't hurt anybody. You know Mrs. Elliot is cracked on the subject of Methodists. Nobody else makes any fuss about my going. I always behave myself. You ask Jem or Mrs. Blythe and see what they say. I'll abide by their opinion. I'm going for the paper now and I'll bring out the lantern and we'll all sign." Fifteen minutes later the document was solemnly signed on Hezekiah Pollock's tombstone, on the centre of which stood the smoky manse lantern, while the children knelt around it. Mrs. Elder Clough was going past at the moment, and next day all the Glen heard that the man's children had been having another praying competition and had wound it up by chasing each other all over the graves with a lantern. This piece of embroidery was probably suggested by the fact that, after the signing and sealing was completed, Carl had taken the lantern and had walked circumspectly to the little hollow to examine his ant-hill. The others had gone quietly into the manse and to bed. "'Do you think it is true that Father is going to marry Miss West?' Una had tremulously asked of Faith, after their prayers had been said. "'I don't know, but I'd like it,' said Faith. "'Oh, I wouldn't,' said Una, chokingly. She's nice the way she is, but Mary Vance says it changes people altogether to be made stepmothers. They get horrid cross and mean and hateful, then, and turn your father against you. She says they're sure to do that. She never knew it to fail in a single case." "'I don't believe Miss West would ever try to do that,' cried Faith. Mary says anybody would. She knows all about stepmother's faith. She says she's seen hundreds of them and you've never seen one. Oh, Mary has told me blood-curdling things about them. She says she knew of one who whipped her husband's little girls on their bare shoulders till they bled and then shut them up in a cold, dark coal cellar all night. She says they're ALL aching to do things like that. I don't believe Miss Westwood. You don't know her as well as I do, Una. Just think of that sweet little bird she sent me. I love it far more than even Adam." It's just being a stepmother changes them. Mary says they can't help it. I wouldn't mind the whippings as much as having Father hate us. You know nothing could make Father hate us. Don't be silly, Una. I dare say there's nothing to worry over. Likely if we run our club right and bring ourselves up properly Father won't even think of marrying anyone. And if he does I KNOW Miss West will be lovely to us." But Una had no such conviction and she cried herself to sleep. End of chapter Twenty-Three. Chapter Twenty Four of Rainbow Valley by Lucy Maud Montgomery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Twenty Four: A Charitable Impulse. For a fortnight, things ran smoothly in the Good Conduct Club. It seemed to work admirably. Not once was Jem Blythe called in as an umpire. Not once did any of the man's children set the Glen Gossips by the ears as for their minor peccadilloes at home they kept sharp tabs on each other and gamely underwent their self-imposed punishment generally a voluntary absence from some gay friday night frolic in rainbow valley or a sojourn in bed on some spring evening when all young bones ached to be out and away faith for whispering in sunday-school condemned herself to pass a whole day without speaking a single word unless it was absolutely necessary and accomplished it It was rather unfortunate that Mr. Baker from Over Harbor should have chosen that evening for calling at the manse, and that Faith should have happened to go to the door. Not one word did she reply to his genial greeting but went silently away to call her father briefly. Mr. Baker was slightly offended and told his wife when he went home that the biggest Meredith girl seemed a very shy, sulky little thing, without manners enough to speak when she was spoken to. But nothing worse came of it, and generally their penances did no harm to themselves or anybody else. All of them were beginning to feel quite cocksure that, after all, it was a very easy matter to bring yourself up. "'I guess people will soon see that we can behave ourselves properly as well as anybody,' said Faith jubilantly. "'It isn't hard when we put our minds to it.'" She and Una were sitting on the Pollock tombstone. It had been a cold, raw, wet day of spring storm, and Rainbow Valley was out of the question for girls, though the manse and the Ingleside boys were down there fishing. The rain had held up, but the east wind blew mercilessly in from the sea, cutting to bone and marrow. Spring was late, in spite of its early promise, and there was even yet a hard drift of old snow and ice in the northern corner of the graveyard. Lyda Marsh, who had come up to bring the manse a mess of herring, slipped in through the gate shivering. She belonged to the fishing village at the harbour mouth, and her father had, for thirty years, made a practice of sending a mess from his first spring catch to the manse. He never darkened a church door. He was a hard drinker and a reckless man, but as long as he sent those herring up to the manse every spring, as his father had done before him, he felt comfortably sure that his account with the powers that govern was squared for the year. He would not have expected a good mackerel catch if he had not sent the first fruits of the season. Lida was a mite of ten and looked younger because she was such a small, wizened little creature. To-night, as she sidled boldly enough up to the manse girls, she looked as if she had never been warm since she was born. Her face was purple and her pale blue, bold little eyes were red and watery. She wore a tattered print dress and a ragged woollen comforter tied across her thin shoulders and under her arms. She had walked the three miles from the harbor mouth barefooted, over a road where there was still snow and slush and mud. Her feet and legs were as purple as her face. But Lida did not mind this much. She was used to being cold, and she had been going barefooted for a month already, like all the other swarming young fry of the fishing village. There was no self-pity in her heart as she sat down on the tombstone and grinned cheerfully at Faith and Una. Faith and Una grinned cheerfully back. They knew Lida slightly, having met her once or twice the preceding summer when they had gone down the harbor with the Blythes. "'Hullo,' said Lida. "'Ain't this a fierce kind of night. Tain't fit for a dog to be out, is it?' "'Then why are you out?' asked Faith. "'Pa made me bring you up some herring,' returned Lida. She shivered, coughed, and stuck out her bare feet. Lida was not thinking about herself or her feet and was making no bid for sympathy. She held her feet out instinctively to keep them from the wet grass around the tombstone. But Faith and Una were instantly swamped with a wave of pity for her. She looked so cold, so miserable. Oh, why are you barefooted on such a cold night? cried Faith. Your feet must be almost frozen. Pretty near," said Lida proudly. I tell you it was fierce walking up that harbor road. Why didn't you put on your shoes and stockings? asked Una. Ain't none to put on. All I had was wore out by the time winter was over," said Lida indifferently. For a moment Faith stared in horror. This was terrible. Here was a little girl, almost a neighbor, half frozen because she had no shoes or stockings in this cruel spring weather. Impulsive Faith thought of nothing but the dreadfulness of it. In a moment she was pulling off her own shoes and stockings. Here. "'Take these and put them right on,' she said, forcing them into the hands of the astonished Lida. "'Quick now. You'll catch your death of cold. I've got others. Put them right on.' Lida, recovering her wits, snatched at the offered gift with a sparkle in her dull eyes. Sure she would put them on—and that mighty quick—before anyone appeared with authority to recall them. In a minute she had pulled the stockings over her scrawny little legs and slipped Faith's shoes over her thick little ankles. "'I'm obliged to you,' she said. But won't your folks be cross?" No. And I don't care if they are," said Faith. Do you think I could see anyone freezing to death without helping them if I could? It wouldn't be right—especially when my father's a minister. Will you want them back? It's awful cold down at the harbor mouth—long after it's warm up here," said Lila slyly. No, you're to keep them, of course. That is what I meant when I gave them. I have another pair of shoes and plenty of stockings. Lida had meant to stay a while and talk to the girls about many things. But now she thought she had better get away before somebody came and made her yield up her booty. So she shuffled off through the bitter twilight in the noiseless, shadowy way she had slipped in. As soon as she was out of sight of the manse she sat down, took off the shoes and stockings, and put them in her herring basket. She had no intention of keeping them on down that dirty harbor road. They were to be kept good for gala occasions. Not another little girl down at the harbour mouth had such fine black cashmere stockings and such smart almost new shoes. Lida was furnished forth for the summer. She had no qualms in the matter. In her eyes the manse people were quite fabulously rich, and no doubt those girls had slathers of shoes and stockings. Then Lida ran down to the Glen village and played for an hour with the boys before Mr. Flagg's store, splashing about in a pool of slush with the maddest of them, until Mrs. Elliot came along and bade her be gone home. "'I don't think, Faith, that you should have done that,' said Una a little reproachfully after Lida had gone. "'You'll have to wear your good boots every day now and they'll soon scuff out.' "'I don't care,' cried Faith, still in the fine glow of having done a kindness to a fellow creature. It isn't fair that I should have two pairs of shoes and poor little Lida Marsh not have any. Now we both have a pair. You know perfectly well, Una, that Father said in his sermon last Sunday that there was no real happiness in getting or having, only in giving. And it's true. I feel far happier now than I ever did in my whole life before. Just think of Lida walking home this very minute with her poor little feet all nice and warm and comfy. "'You know you haven't another pair of black cashmere stockings,' said Una. "'Your other pair were so full of holes that Aunt Martha said she couldn't darn them any more and she cut the legs up for stove-dusters. You've nothing but those two pairs of striped stockings you hate so.' All the glow and uplift went out of faith. Her gladness collapsed like a pricked balloon. She sat for a few dismal minutes in silence, facing the consequences of her rash act. "'Oh, Una, I never thought of that she said dolefully. I didn't stop to think at all." The striped stockings were thick, heavy, coarse ribbed stockings of blue and red which Aunt Martha had knit for Faith in the winter. They were undoubtedly hideous. Faith loathed them as she had never loathed anything before. Wear them she certainly would not. They were still unworn in her bureau drawer. "'You'll have to wear the striped stockings after this,' said Una. Just think how the boys in school will laugh at you. You know how they laugh at Mamie Warren for her striped stockings and call her Barbara Pole, and yours are far worse." "'I won't wear them,' said Faith. "'I'll go barefooted first, cold as it is.' "'You can't go barefooted to church to-morrow. Think what people would say. Then I'll stay home. You can't. You know very well Aunt Martha will make you go." Faith did know this. The one thing on which Aunt Martha troubled herself to insist was that they must all go to church, rain or shine. How they were dressed, or if they were dressed at all, never concerned her. But go they must. That was how Aunt Martha had been brought up seventy years ago, and that was how she meant to bring them up. "'Haven't you got a pair you can lend me, Una?' said poor Faith piteously. Una shook her head. "'No. You know I only have the one black pair, and they're so tight I can hardly get them on.' they wouldn't go on you. Neither would my gray ones. Besides, the legs of them are all darned and darned." "'I won't wear those striped stockings,' said Faith stubbornly. The feel of them is even worse than the looks. They make me feel as if my legs were as big as barrels, and they're so scratchy. Well, I don't know what you're going to do. If Father was home I'd go and ask him to get me a new pair before the store closes, but he won't be home till too late. I'll ask him Monday." And I won't go to church to-morrow. I'll pretend I'm sick and Aunt Martha'll have to let me stay home." That would be acting a lie, Faith, cried Una. You can't do that. You know it would be dreadful. What would Father say if he knew? Don't you remember how he talked to us after Mother died and told us we must always be true—no matter what else we failed in? He said we must never tell or act a lie. He said he'd trust us not to. You can't do it, Faith. Just wear the striped stockings. It'll only be for once. Nobody'll notice them in church. It isn't like school. And your new brown dress is so long they won't show much. Wasn't it lucky Aunt Martha made it big so you'd have room to grow in—for all you hated it so when she finished it?" I won't wear those stockings," repeated Faith. She uncoiled her bare white legs from the tombstone and deliberately walked through the wet, cold grass to the bank of snow. Setting her teeth she stepped upon it and stood there. "'What are you doing?' cried Una, aghast. "'You'll catch your death of cold, Faith, Meredith.' "'I'm trying to,' answered Faith. "'I hope I'll catch a fearful cold and be awful sick to-morrow. Then I won't be acting a lie. I'm going to stand here as long as I can bear it.' "'But, Faith, you might really die. You might get pneumonia. Please, Faith, don't. Let's go into the house and get something for your feet.' Oh, here's Jerry. I'm so thankful. Jerry, make Faith get off that snow. Look at her feet." "'Holy cats! Faith, what are you doing?' demanded Jerry. "'Are you crazy?' "'No. Go away,' snapped Faith. "'Then are you punishing yourself for something? It isn't right if you are. You'll be sick.' "'I want to be sick. I'm not punishing myself. Go away!' "'Where's her shoes and stockings?' asked Jerry of Una. She gave them to Lida Marsh. Lida Marsh? What for?' because Lida had none and her feet were so cold and now she wants to be sick so that she won't have to go to church tomorrow and wear her striped stockings. But, Jerry, she may die." "'Faith,' said Jerry, "'get off that ice bank or I'll pull you off.' "'Pull away,' dared Faith. Jerry sprang at her and caught her arms. He pulled one way and Faith pulled another. Una ran behind Faith and pushed. Faith stormed at Jerry to leave her alone. Jerry stormed back at her not to be a dizzy idiot and Una cried. They made no end of noise and they were close to the road fence of the graveyard. Henry Warren and his wife drove by and heard and saw them. Very soon the Glen heard that the man's children had been having an awful fight in the graveyard and using the most improper language. Meanwhile Faith had allowed herself to be pulled off the ice because her feet were aching so sharply that she was ready to get off anyway. They all went in amiably and went to bed. Faith slept like a cherub, and woke in the morning without a trace of a cold. She felt that she couldn't feign sickness and act a lie, after remembering that long ago talk with her father, but she was still as fully determined as ever that she would not wear those abominable stockings to church. End of chapter twenty four.